this is Jamie Baker. I'm a broadcaster analyst for the San Jose Sharks, and you're listening to the Tomahawk Roundup. All right, so what is going on, guys? This is Frank Zorowski here with the Tomahawk Roundup on WNTH 88.1 FM, Chicago, here with Jamie Baker of the San Jose Sharks. Jamie, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. If you saw my view, you would be envious. I saw it on your Instagram story. Yeah, like this is our, um, this is the epitome of radical gratitude. I can complain about our travel because this is the ninth city we've been in in the last 18 days, all four time zones. Oh, wow. Four cities in the eastern time zone, one in the central, St. Louis, two in the mountain, two in the Pacific, including Chalet because we went home, but I'm still counting as a city. So this is nine cities in 18 days, but it's my favorite hotel on the road. I'm not going to say the exact name of the hotel, but it's overlooking the bay, the mountains. There's boats out there. There's pontoon planes flying by. They're literally at the same level almost at the window because they land like just below us. It's the coolest thing. So I'm full of gratitude right now. I got the that's you on Earth. I can't. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Sharks are kind of in the same position as the Blackhawks that we cover midway through the 2019-20 season, just at a 500, just above below 500. As an analyst, what parallels do you draw between these two teams? Um, Chicago won three Stanley Cups last decade, <laughs> and when you win, and you have win with longevity um, you're not getting first round second round third round picks so in a salary cap system it impacts you it, it just does it's you look at where Detroit is you look at where the LA Kings are um, but so Chicago's had to go through a transition you lose you sign your core to long-term contracts and they get well paid of course but those dollars in the salary cap system ultimately affect the depth. And depth players also, your value goes up when you win a Stanley Cup. So somebody that could be making, you know, I'll say $1 to $2 million as a third or fourth liner helps. And you need, you need everybody to go win a cup. Everybody knows that. Like, it's not, you know, the Taves, the Canes, the Keiths, these guys, you know, they can eat up big minutes. They can score huge overtime goals, but it's also there's always always contributions from the depth players, whoever they are. And when they win a cup, their value goes up. And now they may go sign a four year contract for three or four million. Now you lose that. And you lose a part of the chemistry that was in the room. So it's kind of evolving and changing. And then it's forcing the GM to, to make tweaks, but you know, the piece of the pie that he has to work with isn't quite as big because you sign these long-term contracts. It's the nature of the business. Um, I think that the Blackhawks realize this and have been you know, going through this where they've missed the playoffs. So they're a little bit ahead of the curve on a rebuild with the core intact. That's, that's what I'll call it. For the Sharks right now, they didn't win the Stanley Cup, but they've been competitive every year you know they only missed the playoffs once in the last previous decade very impressive and now you know Doug Wilson's been forced to pull the different strings try different things try and be creative you know having 
having a Brent Burns and an Eric Carlson on the same team. You know, it's 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 a different type of look, but the Thornton Marlowe era is, you know, aging out, so he's looking for different ways to, you know, remain a contender. And in doing so, there's, you know, depth issues with the goaltending hasn't necessarily been there. The chemistry hasn't been there. And so they find themselves in a spot. Actually, those Blackhawks are closer to making the playoffs right now than the, the, the Sharks are. And and so that's where they find themselves. In no, right now, they're in no man's land. You know, you've got long-term contracts locked up with some big money. Uh, you're trying to get a, you know, improve your prospect pool. Um, you know, you're trying to keep up with the big boys who are, you know, the the real the teams that I would say are legitimate contenders now. But you're also trying to keep up with the emerging teams that are youth based that have a lot of promise moving forward. So you're right in, you're stuck in the middle, and that so both teams are kind of stuck there. The difference is the Sharks do. The big difference is. Blackhawks have three banners, the Sharks don't. Uh, no, I completely agree with you, uh, especially with the salary cap era, talking about, you know, the depth guys, were like guys like Boland, Froelich, for the Blackhawks, who obviously had signed other contracts or were traded away. Uh, we interviewed your partner, Randy Hahn, last year. What is it like working and knowing such an enthusiastic piece of the hockey community and be just a great guy overall? pressure on me to just really like he calls such a great game that like there's pressure you have to understand there's pressure because I can only really bring the show down not up <laughs> right yeah I'm joking but it's fun to work no he's, he's fun to work first of all he's a good person um second of all he's a true pro at what he does third he's natural at it like He's outgoing, he's funny, he's witty. Um, you know, he, his preparation is absolutely incredible. You know, he's tweaked it over the years, but he's always trying to find new ways. Even the last, you know, because he's getting a little bit older, he, he he's more conscientious of rest on game days as opposed to over-prepping. So maybe a little bit more prep the night before, get a good night's sleep, and potentially give himself a time for a nap or, you know, he likes to exercise on game days, but not as much prep on game days because you've got to peak at game time. So he's always conscientious of it, just like a pro is, you know, or uh, an athlete. Cause you got to be ready at puck drop. Well, we got to be ready half an hour when the pregame show starts. And you've got to be on for three hours. And he's one of the best in the business. Absolutely. Absolutely great at what he does. I love working with him. You know, I love the way he calls the game. My goal is to, to listen to him, and I, he's so good at it. I try and feed up. He knows when a game, you've got yourself a great game, so I try and lay out a little bit more. And then last night was a game where the Sharks were trailing 4 nothing after two periods. Now we can go have some fun. You know, we can play around in the third period. Like, you can only hammer, hammer home that, okay, they're going to lose. You still want to try and make the broadcast, you know, entertaining to some degree to a fan base that knows that their team, their favorite team is going to lose. You can't, you can't keep hammering them, you know? So I even said last night, you know, it's like, we can only beat a dead horse so much. But so, you know, we, 
we still call the game as it is. We're still informing. We're still educating. But with the entertainment, we're trying to also have a little bit of fun with it, too. It's like, hey, this is a sport. We're not going to win tonight, but this is one of 82 games. We can still have a little bit of fun here. We've got to, it's still hockey, and we're calling a game. You know, life is good. Yeah, couldn't agree more I, when I call my games, you know. Uh, when if we lose, you know, it's just you try to you try to get some look at the positive, look at the gratitude, like you had said in the beginning. The you know we may have lost this game, but there was this great special teams play that we did. Um, Want to shift your focus to your pro career? Uh, we cover the Chicago Wolves on our channel, on our podcast, and you actually won a Turner Cup with the Chicago Wolves back in 1998. What was that like playing for such a storied organization like the Wolves and winning the Turner Cup? You know, it, it was it was two facets, really. It was a bittersweet, in honesty, because I was with the Toronto Maple Leafs. They weren't going to send some of the veteran players um, to Newfoundland, where that's where the baby Leafs were. So that was more for prospects. So they sent a few of us, myself, Matt Martin, Scotty Pearson, um, to the Chicago Wolves. So they were an ind- independent team in the International League. Bittersweet because, you know, I've been in the NHL and now I'm back in the minors. And you go there, you want to have a good attitude and everything, but you're not where you want to be. So there's that adjustment. We had a lot of veterans, though. Kevin Dahl was there, Steve Malte, of course, but <clears throat> uh, Bob Nardella, local guy, Chris Marinucci, um, Tom Tilly was there. So we have all, all these guys. And once I was there and started to settle in, you get to, you know, it's just hockey. And you're playing for this team. You know, that's, that's how it was. You're playing for this team. Um, John Anderson was a great coach, players coach. So, you know, God, God bless their souls. Two of the teammates, Tim Breslin and Mark Potvin, had passed away. Great teammates. Tim Breslin was my lining in the playoffs. You know, and here's a guy, this, this is what put it in perspective for me. Tim, Pre- Tim Breslin, who I played against in college, he, he went to Lake Superior State, actually won the national championship against me when I was at St. Lawrence. So oh, wow. Had a little bit of fun. Had a little, yeah. He was a, he was a, he was a freshman. I was a junior. I was in late class, but they scored in overtime, so we had a little fun with that, of course. Oh, yeah, no, they, uh, the fun there must have been great. Right? Like, he, well, more fun for him. Yeah. <laughs> There's, there's ribbing going on, friendly ribbing. But the thing is, here's a guy that had mostly been in the East Coast League. Another guy, Jeremy Melmont, got traded to us at, at the trade deadline. Primarily an East Coast League player. And, and then, so, they come up to the American Hockey League, and that's a big deal for them. And so, that's, it's interesting when you, you've got guys coming from different levels, and you're at, you know, the top minor league level in pro hockey. So it's still great hockey. And so how do you how do you bring that team together? And we had a core of veterans um, that we were a good team. We were already more skilled than we were going to make the playoffs. But I, you know, I remember going into Johnny Anderson's office a couple of weeks before playoffs. And I'm like, listen, they've made some other trades. Mark Rogers, we had uh, Stevie Martins, Steve LaRouche. Like, we had a lot of skilled players that just weren't good enough to get to the next level. 
Um, and you got, I got to see why, like I talked to a few of them. They're like, how come you don't think I'm taking a job? Like, well, you're, you're, you're really, really skilled and you're a high score at the American league level. And your game is a top six game. Like you have to go and make an NHL team in the top six. The problem is the guys in the top six in the NHL are like really, really good. Like who like, that's the problem. Like, I, I played in a bottom six-year-old manager, you know, mostly as a third-line player. My game evolved when I turned pro. My first training camp, you know, was in Quebec, and I saw, well, Guy Lafleur was there, Peter Stastny was there, um, Michelle Guillet was there, Joe Sackett was there. That must Max have been Jack crazy. Was there. Like, yeah, like, you're watching these guys, I'm like, I'll never be as good as these guys. So then I started to change, you know, my game evolved. I'm like, I need to be really good defensively away from the puck. I need to be quick to play against, um, you know, good, like more of a shutdown role. Still want to contribute offensively. Penalty, a little more emphasis on penalty kill. I'll get more penalty kill time. Power play. Really good on face-offs. That was a way for me to get ice time. You know, if I could be really, really good at face-offs, they'll put me out for key face-off situations. If I win the face-off, you know, the 30 seconds left in the game, the defensive zone, I win the face-off, and clear one to win the game, I become a more reliable, dependable player. So there's types of things. And had a great coach down there in Robbie Fitorik. So my game evolved so I could go be a depth player. Also, as a centerman, I learned how to play wing. So when I went to Chicago, you know, I came there. I was skilled. I could have been on the top two lines, and I was at times. But... My role in the NHL for so long as a third-line guy, like a shutdown guy, PK guy, I went into Johnny Anderson. I said, listen, when you go to the playoffs, like, why don't you just make me your third-line center and I'll go shut down the other... And this is a true con- it's a conversation. I'm, I, don't want, I don't want any, any sense of arrogance or anything like that to come across. But I did say, like, let me go shut down the other team's top lines. It won't be... It'll be fun. I'm going to do it. I'm used to going against like Gretzky, Lemire, Pavel Bure, Eric Lindros, Joe Sackett, Pierre Forsberg, Timo Solani. These, those guys weren't just good. They were mental. They're mentally, you couldn't get to them. The guys in the minors, the top, top line guys, I knew I could get to them. I could get off. I get, I could get them off their game. So I went in and asked Johnny Anderson. I said, I'd like to be the third line center going to the playoffs. And, you know, with the role of shutting down the other team's top line, if I match up against them and shut them down and frustrate them, that's going to open up our, our top two lines. We're going to create some mismatches right there. Exactly. And I said, I want, I, and I said, I said, I said, you've got to give me two wingers. I've got to get two wingers that I want. And I didn't have to handpick them, but I said, I need some guys that can think the game. I can't have somebody that just runs around, because I'm, I'm a read-react centerman. I'll do the heavy lifting in the defensive zone, but I can't be I can't be filling them in if they're running around all over the ice. So he gave me Chris Marinucci and Tim Breslin. The only reason Chris Marinucci didn't make the NHL, he won a Hobie Baker Award. He just wasn't fast enough to play in the NHL. He had amazing hands, great shot, great passer. His vision was fantastic. His hockey sense was off the chart. He just wasn't fast enough for the pace in the NHL. And they gave me Tim Breslin, who you know, came just the ultimate team guy, literally the ultimate team player. 
would do anything for the team. And he had, he was very, very conscientious to the details and habits. So what he lacked in just natural ability, he made up for in tenaciousness and being in the right place, paying the price, all of that. He didn't cheat. So the three of us worked together and it was comical some games. Like I would have some of the top players on the other team so pissed off at me. You know, I could just get into their heads. I had different mechanisms. Don't necessarily think I should share them, but some of them weren't the cleanest. wasn't the nicest way to get them <laughs> off their game. But if it got got them off their game, it got them off their game. That was the whole. That was the protocol. And and so we we accepted that, and we let everyone else do the squad. And I got mad at the team once. It was in the first round. You know, I came in and I'm like, guys, you got to stay in the fucking penalty box. Like, we're taking so many penalties. I smashed my stick at the end of the second period. I think we'd have 11 minors. I'm like, guys, I've played about 30 seconds five on five. You guys are taking selfish penalties. Stay out of the effing box. We're not going to win a championship if we keep taking this many penalties. And we can't keep yelling at the refs. The refs aren't going to like us. Like, lay off the refs and stay out of the box. Nobody can beat us five on five. The only way we're going to lose this championship is if we... We're gonna, it's gonna be self-inflicted because we can't control our emotions and we can't stay out of the box. And things settled down from there and we went on, it wasn't easy, but we went on to win and I'll tell you, like, I cherish that. I know it wasn't the Stanley Cup, but I cherish that, I cherish that trophy and that group of guys and what we went through. There's a bond that you have the rest of your life. It was, it was an amazing experience. Amazing experience, and it was. A, we won our championship the day after. It was the Rosemont Horizon. It was on a Monday. The place was packed, eighteen thousand. The day after, the Bulls won their last championship in the NBA. Oh wow! The city was in a. Yeah, the city was. Everybody was in a good mood. Obviously, they got front billing. We, we you know, we were a minor league team, but for us, like that night at the Rosemont Horizon, at the time, I think it's Allstate Arena or whatever it's called now. I don't know. It was the Rosemont Horizon at the time. It was 18,000 people, zero, game seven against the Detroit Pipers, 0 0 going into the third period. We scored two goals, got an empty netter. Bedlam, great celebration, great ownership there. Um, yeah, just, you know, one of your top hockey memories was, was winning that championship, but going through the journey with, with that group of players. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, so I want to touch base a little bit outside of the hockey realm for you. You've made it public, you know, this this radical gratitude thing. Explain it to our listeners because I understand it, but you've been very public with your battles and, you know, you, you really wanted to help other people. Explain to us about radical gratitude, what it does, and any advice for our listeners who might be going through the same battle that you did. Well, for anyone who doesn't know my story, Thirty-second elevator pitch was biologically speaking. Grew up with ADHD, a lot of energy, <laughs> had a lot of energy, but I was happy, fun, you know, kept me busy, prankster, but you know, good athlete, had a good social life, you know, not nothing. There was no extremes other than I had a lot of energy. I'm always on the go, got good grades, but, you know. Uh, 
go to college, turn pro, make it, beat the odds, and then have some really bad concussions. And who knows how many sub-concussions from blows to the head, punches, elbows, head smashed in the ice or long flats or whatever. Started to change. Was married at the time, two young kids. One summer, my wife, this is like recently, like the last few years, she talked about it. That I started to change. Like she remembers I was holding a grapefruit one summer. This is after a year I had a massive concussion and I had a few really, really bad ones. Um, and I was asking, I'm like, what's this? And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what's this? And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, what's this in my hand? And she's like, the grapefruit? I'm like, yeah. And, and that was one of, she could give you a, a hundred examples, but that one was kind of the one that, you know, broke the camera's back. It sucked, it, it sticks out of there. There were all these signs, but that one was like, this guy can't even remember what a grapefruit's called. This is bad. So all the concussions started to change me. My impulsiveness, I couldn't control as much. Like my ADD was now worse. My mood started to change. I would have bursts of anger that I never had. Paranoia that I never had. Mind is always spinning. My sleep patterns are changing. Then I retire from hockey. And now environmental factors come into play. You know, the transition from hockey, trying to find out what you're going to do. We got hit in the stock market. Um, like, wasn't working for a while. Then I did it, you know, doing different things. So that exasperated things. I go see a couple of psychiatrists. One doesn't work. One works for a little bit. And then I lose trust in her for for legitimate reasons that aren't good that I'm not going to talk about. I could have probably had a lawsuit if I wanted, but it wasn't worth it. It's not who I am. Went to another one. I get a, I, I'm put on Adderall, over-prescribed, too much. I'm like whacked out of my brain. Instead of just weaning off of it, you know, I'm not in a good place. I just go off and cold turkey. I was at my in-law's house. I lock myself in a room. I destroy the room, $3,000 computer, like smash. It's like a crazy person locked in and smashing my head against the wall. If there was a sharp knife in the room, I would have committed suicide just on, like it would, I just would have did it, you know? Thankfully, there wasn't. And that began a decade and a half long journey of trying to self-medicate, struggling with lack of sleep, um, not in control of my brain, no impulse control whatsoever. So I could be funny. I could still go and be funny socially if you saw me, but no focus. Uh, slowly and surely, connections with you know important people in my life were starting to fail because I had no ability to connect. And you know, hit rock bottom a few years ago. Went on a leave of absence. There was some addiction. Not nothing major though. There was you know like there was. There was cause effect. I was just I was just trying to find different ways to slow my brain down. You know, I was going crazy. I was going crazy, and I hated myself, which is funny because I wasn't like I was never an arrogant person, but I always like I like myself, but I like to have fun, and I really cared about other people. Like I have a good heart, like I truly do. 
And so the leave of absence was the beginning of talking about it, coming to terms with what I'm dealing with, getting a support group. And in doing so, I was put on medications. I still take them today that stabilize my brain. I've done things like neurofeedback. I've seen some other you know, uh, organizations to basically repair some of the damage to my brain from the concussions. It, it was like, they're like, yep, yeah, I've got brain scans. I thought you've got damage. So like neurofeedback, different types of things. But then I came up with a retrain. I just kind of all the training I did as an athlete, I'm like, I got to retrain my brain. And so I studied mindfulness. I read The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. It's great. It's like age old wisdom. It's really good. Like, you know, you have control over your mind, not outside of that. To realize this and you will find strength. You know, a quote from Marcus Aurelius 2,000 years ago. To bear trials with a calm mind robs misfortune of its strength and burden. You know, Seneca. 2,000 years ago, that quote. But I couldn't do that without stabilizing my brain, without repairing some of my brain. And then this radical gratitude, it was an email that my daughter sent me while I was on this leave of absence, and it came from Rick Warren. And it's basically having gratitude on a moment-by-moment basis. Easier said than done, but what it does, and if you study mindfulness and you study gratitude, gratitude is basically... If you're grateful for where you are right now, then you, you can't really be, your mind can't dwell on events that were in the past, conversations, something that happened, whatever. You know, oh, poor me. And it can't worry about something in the future, whatever that may be. Am I going to get fired? Is this, is this person going to break up with me? How am I going to get this done? Oh, I'm overwhelmed because i got to do this, this, and that. So you're grateful in the moment. So if you wake up, I'm grateful for another day. And I write down in my gratitude journal, I'm grateful for the comfortable bed I sleep in. Today I wrote that. I'm grateful for this amazing view. And yesterday, believe it or not, I left my phone in in a lift going to the arena. And I was talking to somebody, sorry, one of my best friends. And uh, this is a perfect example of gratitude. Um, we were talking about the coaching change, but we were shocked about the coaching change. So with, in Vegas, and of course the Sharks, people are going there. So I'm talking to one of my best friends about it. He's, he's in the hockey world. And I got my, my AirPods in my ears. And I got my game notes in my hand. I get to the arena, Pepsi Center, and or whatever the rank is there in Denver, and I'm, I get out, I forget my, my, I forget my phone in the lift, and I sh- I'm showing my credentials to the security guy, and I realize that the call is getting dimmer. I'm like, oh, shit, I left my phone in the thing. I can see it. See the lift. It's going, kind of going around the corner, and I know that it's got to go around the corner, and it goes up about, you know, another 1,500 meters, if that, and then there's a stop sign. I'm like, I can get, I, I can get him at the stop sign if I run fast enough. So I start to sprint as fast as I can I'm on the sidewalk. I'm literally going full speed. I'm wearing black jeans and a winter jacket. Thank God I didn't have my suit. I'm coming around in one of those scooters that you can drive around town, just laying on the ground, kind of sticking out in the sidewalk. I don't see it. I trip over at full speed, 
do like a Superman fly through the air and land right on the sidewalk, right on my whole left side. Go full speed. Get up. I know my elbow, like I'm just the whole side's like, you know, dirt and everything. Get up, keep running. Some lady yells, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, thanks. I go, I don't catch the lift, but the lift, the good news is the lift comes back five minutes later. He realized I left my phone in. I wrote in my gratitude journal yesterday, I'm grateful I wasn't hurt worse. I'm grateful I was wearing my jeans and jacket, not my suit, otherwise I would have to buy my suit. So as opposed to being pissed off at the situation, being mad at the situation, worrying about like the scrapes on my shoulder, elbow, and knee, I was grateful that it wasn't worse. Because I could have smashed my head. I could have got another concussion, which I can't really afford. Now, that sounds crazy, but that's that's radical gratitude radical gratitude is finding a different perspective even if you don't get what you want it doesn't mean you can't be unhappy doesn't mean you can't be mad but you accept the situation you look at it as an opportunity to get better because there's ebbs and flows in life and then when something's good you're in full appreciation so i'm looking out at this view i'm looking at all these boats i'm not sitting here saying Oh, poor me, I wish I had more money, I could have afforded one of those boats. I'm like, wow, this is an awesome gift. And if you do it every day, I do, I've been doing a radical, I've been doing a gratitude journal now over two years. It starts to change your brain. You don't, you look at situations differently. You're eating a dinner, it doesn't matter what it is. You could be having a hot dog at a ballpark or you could be in a nice restaurant, you could be eating top ramen. You could be eating, you know, a nice pasta meal at home. If you're eating, you're grateful you're eating. There's a lot of people in the world that would love to be eating right now that don't have access to the resources of food that you have. So it's, it shifts your perspective. And honestly, it's it's just a better way to live. So it's a long, it's a long-winded answer with a little bit of history. But if you start, if you study gratitude and and its benefits, it's they magnify over time the more you use it and you ultimately live a simpler, better, more content life. You're in har- harmony is, uh, is harmony is available if you pursue gratitude. Wow. Just some very inspiring words from someone who's obviously been through a lot, battled back. Jamie, is there anything else you want to say to our listeners before we head out today? Thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope I didn't bore you with that. I, I will say, in the deep depths of things, I almost committed suicide twice. I was within, in the, in the dark depths of depression, as deep as it gets, more than close, but two really, really, really close uh, calls. And my higher power, I don't, I don't try not to get spiritual, God, whoever, whatever, put a message in my brain that was being devoured by the beast and painted a picture of my daughters receiving a phone call. My two daughters are both in their 20s, receiving a phone call that their dad had died and committed suicide and, and their reaction. And it made me enough to collapse so I didn't go and finish what I was on my way to do. Then I sought help, and I have a support group. I, I made a deal 
with myself. Anthony Bourdain as a Robin Williams are inspirations to me. I don't want to become a statistic. And then that creates more awareness. I want to be here to create awareness. I want to be, I don't want my story to be a dark story. I want it to be a story of hope. If you can get a sliver of hope and tell one person that you're struggling, or tell two people or three people and your willingness, you're willing to go seek some professional help and maybe do whatever it takes that's healthy to stabilize your brain and then put in a, a retrain the brain routine, you can change your life. It's not going to happen overnight, but you get to the point, it's a lifestyle, it's not a habit. Like, I love doing it. I love my morning routine. I love doing it because I know I'm feeding my brain. I know I'm training my brain. So you could do it. If you're struggling out there, go talk to someone. If you know someone that's struggling, pull them aside and talk to them and begin the path. A sliver of hope. That's all it is. One sliver of hope can change someone's life. And from there, there's a ripple effect. And, and where you're headed is down this avenue of grandeur called gratitude. That's the goal. You can't start at gratitude because your brain isn't, if you're struggling because your brain's not in a healthy place. But once you stabilize it and you start to work on things, you can head down that road. And when you do, um, there's an accumulating effect that starts to take over and you see the world in a different way. And then you get to help other people. And it's, I don't help people. I don't, like, it doesn't make me feel good. I think we're just all in this together. I think it's just now part of my journey. I look at my broadcasting career as a platform to help people. What I used to look at as like, well, this is, this is my job. To me, it's a platform. I love doing it. I want to keep doing it. But as long as I'm doing it and keep getting healthier, I think I can struggle with that. And to me, that's, that's kind of where my life is going, and I love it. Jamie Baker, NBC California analyst for the San Jose Sharks. Thank you for sharing such a powerful story, Jamie. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. I really appreciate it.